Section 7 of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section 7 Salvation Gap. After cutting the gazelle's throat, Dryland had gone out of her tent, secure and happy, in choosing the skilful moment. They would think it was the other man, the unknown one. There were his boot-prints this fine morning, marking his way from the tent, down the hill into the trees. He was not an inhabitant of the camp. This was his first visit, cautiously made, and nobody had seen him come or go except Dryland. The woman was proprietor of the dance-hall at Salvation Gap, and on account of her beauty and habits had been named the American Beer Gazelle by a traveling naturalist who had education, and was interested in the wild animals of all countries. Dryland's relations with the gazelle were colored with sentiment. The sentiment on his part was genuine, so genuine that the shrewd noticing camp joked Dryland telling him he had grown to look young again under the elixir of romance. One of the prospectors had remarked fancifully that Dryland's rusted mustache had livened up, same as flowers you've carried long ways when your girl puts them in a pitcher of water. Being the sentiment of a placer miner, the lover's feeling took no offense or wound at any conduct of the gazelles that was purely official. It was for him that she personally cared. He never thought of suspecting anything when, after one of her trips to Folsom, she began to send away some of the profits, gold, coined sometimes, sometimes raw dust, that her hall of entertainment earned for her. She mentioned to him that her mother in San Antone needed it, and simple-minded Dryland believed. It did not occur to him to ask, or even wonder, how it came that this mother had never needed money until so lately, or why the trips to Folsom became so constant. Counting her middle-aged adorer a fool, the humorous gazelle had actually once, on being prevented from taking the journey herself, asked him to carry the package to Folsom for her and deliver it there to a certain shotgun messenger of the express company who would see that it went to the right place a woman's name and an address at san antonio were certainly scrawled on the parcel the faithful dryland waited till the stage came in and handed over his treasure to the messenger who gave him one amazed look that he did not notice he ought to have seen that young man a while afterwards the package torn open, a bag of dust on his knee, laughing almost to tears over a letter he had found with the gold inside the wrapping. But Dryland was on the road up to Salvation Gap at that time. The shotgun messenger was twenty-three. Dryland was forty-five. Gazelles are apt to do this sort of thing. After all, though, it was silly, just for the sake of a laugh, to let the old lover learn the face of his secret rival. It was one of those early unimagined nails people sometimes drive into their own coffin. An ancient series of events followed, 
continued abject faith and passion on the miner's part, continued presence of dust from him to the lady, on her part continued trips to Folsom, a lessened caution, and a brag of manner based upon her very just popularity at the Gap. Next, Dryland's first sickening dawn of doubt, jealousy equipping him with a new and alien slyness, the final accident of his seeing the shotgun messenger on his very first visit to the Gap come out of the gazelle's tent so early in the morning, the instant blaze of truth and fury that turned Dryland to a clever, calculating wild beast. So now her throat was cut, and she was good and dead. He had managed well. The whole game had shown instantly like a picture on his brain, complete at a stroke, with every move clear. He had let the man go down the hill, just for the present. The camp had got up, eaten its breakfast, and gone out to the ditches, Dryland along with the rest. Owing to its situation, neighbors could not see him presently leave his claim and walk back quickly to the gap at an hour when the dance-hall was likely to be lonely. He had ready what to say if the other women should be there, but they were away at the creek below, washing, and the luxurious, unsuspecting gazelle was in bed in her own tent, not yet disturbed. The quiet wild beast walked through the deserted front entrance of the hall in the most natural manner, and so behind among the empty bottles, and along the plank into the tent. Then, after a while, out again. She would never be disturbed now, and the wild beast was back at its claim, knee-deep and busy among the digging and the wetness, in another pair of overalls, just like the ones that were now under some stones at the bottom of a mud-puddle. And then one very bad, long scream came up to the ditches, and Dryland knew the women had returned from their washing. He raised his head mechanically to listen. He had never been a bad man, had never wished to hurt anybody in his life before that he could remember, but as he pondered upon it in his slow, sure brain, he knew that he was glad he had done this, and was going to do more. He was going to follow those tracks pretty soon, and finish the whole job with his own hand. They had fooled him, and had taken trouble to do it, gone out of their way, made game of him to the quick, and when he remembered, for the twentieth time this morning, that day he had carried the package of gold dust, some of it very likely his own, to the smooth-faced messenger at Folsom, Dryland's stolid body trembled from head to foot, and he spoke blind, inarticulate words. But down below there the screams were sounding. A brother miner came running by. Dryland realized that he ought to be running too, of course, and so he ran. All the men were running from their various scattered claims, and Salvation Gap grew noisy and full of people at once. There was the sheriff also, come up last evening on the track of some stage-robbers, and quite opportune for this, he thought. He liked things to be done legally. The turmoil of execration and fierce curiosity thrashed about for the right man to pitch on for this crime. 
the murdered woman had been so good company, so hearty a wit, such a robust songstress, so tireless a dancer, so thoroughly everybody's friend, that it was inconceivable to the mind of Salvation Gap that anybody there had done it. The women were crying and wringing their hands. The gazelle had been good to them, too. The men were talking and cursing, all but Dryland there among them, serious and strange-looking, so silent that the sheriff eyed him once or twice, though he knew nothing of the miner's infatuation. And then some woman shrieked out the name of Drylan, and the crowd had him gripped in a second, to let him go the next, laughing at the preposterous idea. Saying nothing? Of course he didn't feel like talking. To be sure, he looked dazed. It was hard luck on him. They told the sheriff about him and the gazelle. They explained that Drylan was sort of loony anyway, and the sheriff said, Oh, and began to wonder and surmise in this half-minute they had been now gathered, when suddenly the inevitable boot-prints behind the tent down the hill were found. The shout of discovery startled Drylan as genuinely as if he had never known, and he joined the wild rush of people to the hill. Nor was this acting, the violence he had set going, and in which he swam like a straw, made him forget, or for the moment drift away from, his arranged thoughts, and the tracks on the hill had gone clean out of his head. He was become a mere blank spectator in the storm, incapable of calculation. His own handiwork had stunned him, for he had not foreseen that consequences were going to rise and burst like this. The next thing he knew he was in a pursuit, with pine-trees passing, and the hurrying sheriff remarking to the band that he proposed to maintain order. Dryland heard his neighbor, a true Californian, whose words were lightest when his purpose was most serious, telling the sheriff that order was certainly heaven's first law, and an elegant thing anywhere. But the anxious officer made no retort in kind, and only said that irregularities were damaging to the county's good name, and would keep settlers from moving in. So the neighbor turned to Dryland and asked him when he was intending to wake up, as sleepwalking was considered to be unhealthy. Dryland gave a queer, almost wistful smile, and so they went along. The chatty neighbor spoke low to another man, and said he had never sized up the true state of Dryland's feeling for the gazelle, and that the sheriff might persuade some people to keep regular when they found the man they were hunting. But he doubted if the sheriff would be persuading enough for Dryland. They came out on a road, and the sleepwalker recognized a rock, and knew how far they had gone, and that this was the stage road between Folsom and Surprise Springs. They followed the road, and round a bend came on the man. He had been taking it easily, being in no hurry. He had come to this point by the stage the night before, and now he was waiting for its return to take him back to Folsom. He had been lunching, and was seated on a stone by a small creek. He looked up and saw them, and their gait, and ominous compactness. 
what he did was not the thing for him to do. He leaped into cover and drew his revolver. This attempt at defense and escape was really for the sake of the gold dust he had in his pocket. But when he recognized the sheriff's voice, telling him it would go better with him if he did not try to kill any more people, he was greatly relieved that it was not highwaymen after him and his little gold, and he put up his pistol and waited for them, smiling, secure in his identity. And when they drew nearer he asked them how many people he had killed already. They came up and caught him and found the gold in a moment, ripping it from his pocket, and the yell they gave at that stopped his smiling entirely. When he found himself in irons and hurried along, he began to explain that there was some mistake, told by the chatty neighbor that maybe killing a woman was always a mistake, certainly one this time. As they walked him among them, they gave small notice to his growing fright and bewilderment, but when he appealed to the sheriff on the score of old acquaintanceship, and pitifully begged to know what they supposed he had done, the miners laughed curiously. That brought his entreating back to them, and he assured them, looking in their faces, that he truly did need to be told why they wanted him. So they held up the gold and asked him whose that had been, and he made a wretched hesitation in answering. If anything was needed to clinch their certainty, that did. They could not know that the young successful lover had recognized Dryland's strange face and did not want to tell the truth before him, and hence was telling an unskillful lie instead. A rattle of wheels sounded among the pines ahead, and the stage came up and stopped. Only the driver and a friend were on it, and both of them knew the shotgun messenger and the sheriff, and they asked in some astonishment what the trouble was. It had been stage robbers the sheriff had started after, the driver thought, and, as he commented in friendly tones, to turn up with Wells and Fargo's messenger was the neatest practical joke that had occurred in the county for some time. The always serious and anxious sheriff told the driver the accusation, and it was a genuine cry of horror that the young lover gave at hearing the truth at last, and at feeling the ghastly chain of probability that had wound itself around him. The sheriff wondered if there were a true ring in the man's voice. It certainly sounded so. He was talking with rapid agony, and it was the whole true story that was coming out now. But the chatty neighbor nudged another neighbor at the new explanation about the gold dust that there was no great quantity of it, after all, weighed little against this double accounting for one simple fact. Moreover, the new version did not do the messenger credit in the estimation of the miners, but gave them a still worse opinion of him. It is scarcely fair to disbelieve what a man says he did, and at the same time despise him for having done it. Miners, however, are rational rather than logical. While the listening sheriff grew more determined there should be a proper trial, the deputation from the Gap made up its mind more inexorably the other way. It had even been in the miners' heads to finish the business here on the Folsom Road and get home for supper. 
pine-trees were handy, and there was rope in the stage. They were not much moved by the sheriff's plea that something further might have turned up at the gap, but at the driver's more forcible suggestion that the gap would feel disappointed at being left out, they consented to take the man back there. Dryden never offered any opinion or spoke at all. It was not necessary that he should, and they forgot about him. It was time to be getting along, they said. What was the good in standing in the road here? They nodded good day to the stage-driver, and took themselves and the prisoner into the pines. Once the sheriff had looked at the driver and his friend perched on the halted stage, but he immediately saw too much risk in his half-formed notion of an alliance with them to gallop off with the prisoner. His part must come later, if at all. But the driver had perfectly understood the sheriff's glance, and he was on the sheriff's side, though he showed no sign. As he drove along he began thinking about the way the prisoner had cried out just now, and the inconsiderable value of the dust, and it became clear in his mind that this was a matter for a court and twelve quiet men. The friend beside him was also intent upon his own thoughts, and neither said a word to the other upon the lonely road. The horses soon knew that they were not being driven any more, and they slackened their pace, and finding no reproof came for this, they fell to a comfortable walk. Presently several had snatched a branch in passing, and it waved from their mouths as they nibbled. After that they gave up all pretense at being stage-horses, and the driver noticed them. From habit he whipped them up into shape and gait, and the next moment pulled them in short at the thought that had come to him. The prisoner must be got away from the gap. The sheriff was too single-handed among such a crowd as that, and the driver put a question to his friend. It could be managed by taking a slight liberty with other people's horses, but Wells and Fargo would not find fault with this when the case was one of their own servants, hitherto so well thought of. The stage, being empty and light, could spare two horses and go on, while those two horses, handled with discretion and timeliness, might be very useful at the gap. The driver had best not depart from rule so far as to leave his post and duty. One man would be enough. The friend thought well of this plan, and they climbed down into the road from opposite sides and took out the wheelers. To be sure these animals were heavy and not of the best sort for escaping on, but better than walking, and timeliness and discretion can do a great deal. So in a little while the driver and his stage were gone on their way, the friend with the two horses had disappeared in the wood and the road was altogether lonely. The sheriff's brain was hard at work, and he made no protest now as he walked along, passive in the company of the miners and their prisoner. The prisoner had said all that he had to say, and his man's firmness, which the first shock and amazement had wrenched from him, had come to his help again bringing a certain shame at having let his reserve and bearing fall to pieces, and at having made himself a show. 
so he spoke no more than his grim captors did as they took him swiftly through the wood the sheriff was glad it was some miles they had to go for though they went very fast the distance and the time and even the becoming tired in body might incline their minds to more deliberation he could think yet of nothing new to urge he had seen and heard only the same things that all had and his present hopes lay upon the gap and what more might have come to light there since his departure he looked at Drylyn, but the miner's serious and massive face gave him no suggestion, and the sheriff's reason again destroyed the germ of suspicion that something plainly against reason had several times put in his thoughts. Yet it stuck with him that they had hold of the wrong man. When they reached the gap, and he found the people there as he had left them, and things the same way, with nothing new turned up to help his theory, the sheriff once more looked round. But Dryland was not in the crowd. He had gone, they told him, to look at her. He had set a heap of store by her, they repeated. A heap of store, said the sheriff, thinking. Where is she now? On her bed, said a woman, same as ever, only we fixed her up some. Then I'll take a look at her and him. You boys won't do anything till I come back, will you?" "'Why, if you're anxious to see us do it, Sheriff,' said the chatty neighbor, "'I guess we can wait that long for you.'" The officer walked to the tent. Drylin was standing over the body, quiet and dumb. He was safe for the present, the sheriff knew, and so he left him without speaking and returned to the prisoner and his guard in front of the dance-hall. He found them duly waiting. The only change was that they had a rope there. Once upon a time, said the sheriff, there was a man in Arkansas that had no judgment. They raise em that way in Arkansas, said the chatty neighbor, as the company made a circle to hear the story, a tight cautious circle, with the prisoner and the officer beside him standing in the center. The man's wife had good judgment, continued the narrator, but she went and died on him. Well, I guess that was good judgment, said the neighbor. So the man, he had to run the farm alone. Now they raised poultry, which his wife had always attended to, and he knew she had a habit of setting hens on duck-eggs. He had never inquired her reasons, being shiftless, but that fact he knew. Well, come to investigate the hen-house, there was duck-eggs and hens on em, and also a heap of hen's eggs, but no more hens wishing to set. So the man, having no judgment, persuaded a duck to stay with those eggs. Now it's her I'm chiefly interested in. She was a good enough duck, but hasty. When the eggs hatched out, she didn't stop to notice, but up and takes them down to the pond, and gets mad with them, and shoves them in, and they drowns. Next day or two a lot of the young ducks, they hatched out and come down with the hen, and got in the water all right, and the duck figured out she'd made some mistake, and she felt distressed but the chickens were in heaven. The sheriff studied his audience, and saw that he had lulled their rage a little. 
Now, said he, ain't you boys just a trifle like that duck? I don't know as I can say much to you more than what I have said, and I don't know as I can do anything, fixed as I am. This thing looks bad for him we've got here. Why, I can see that as well as you. But, boys, it's an awful thing to kill an innocent man. I saw that done once, and, God forgive me, I was one of them. I'll tell you how that was. He looked enough like the man we wanted. We were certainly on the right trail. We came on a cabin we'd never known before, pretty far up on the hills. A strange cabin, you see. That seemed just right, just where a man would hide. We were mad at the crime committed, and took no thought. We knew we had caught him. That's the way we felt. So we got our guns ready, and crept up close through the trees, and surrounded that cabin. We called him to come out, and he came with a book in his hands he'd been reading. He did look like the man, and, boys, we gave him no time. He never knew why we fired. He was a harmless old prospector who had got tired of poor luck and knocking around, and over his door he had painted some words, where the wicked cease from troubling. He had figured that up there by that mountain stream the world would let him alone. And ever since then I have thought my life belonged to him first, and me second. Now, this afternoon I'm alone here. You know I can't do much, and I'm going to ask you to help me respect the law. I don't say that in this big country there may not be places, and there may not be times, when the law is too young or else too rotten to take care of itself, and when the American citizen must go back to bedrock principles. But is that so in our valley? Why, if this prisoner is guilty, you can't name me one man of your acquaintance who would want him to live. And that being so, don't we owe him the chance to clear himself, if he can? I can see that prospector now at his door, old, harmless, coming fearless at our call, because he had no guilt upon his conscience, and we shot him down without a word. Boys, he has the call on me now, and if you insist— The sheriff paused, satisfied with what he saw on the faces around him. Some of the men knew the story of the prospector. It had been in the papers, but of his part in it they had not known. They understood quite well the sacrifice he stood ready to make now in defending the prisoner. The favorable silence was broken by the sound of horses. Timeliness and discretion were coming up the hill. Drylin, at the same moment, came out of the dead woman's tent, and, looking down, realized the intended rescue. With his mind waked up suddenly from its dull dream and opened with a human impulse, he ran to help, but the sheriff saw him and thought he was trying to escape. "'That's the man!' he shouted savagely to the ring. Some of the gap ran to the edge of the hill, and seeing the hurrying Drylin and the horses below, also realized the rescue. Putting the wrong two and two together, they instantly saw in all this a well-devised scheme of delay and collusion. They came back, running through the dance-hall to the front, and the sheriff was pinioned from behind and thrown down and held. 
"'So ye were alone, were ye?' said the chatty neighbor. "'Well, ye made a good talk. Keep quiet. We don't want to hurt ye.' At this supposed perfidy, the Gap's rage was at white heat again. The men massed together, and fierce and quick as lightning, the messenger's fate was wrought. The work of adjusting the rope and noose was complete, and death going on in the air, when Drylin, meaning to look the ground over for the rescue, came cautiously back up the hill, and saw the body black against the clear sunset sky. At his outcry they made ready for him, and when he blindly rushed among them they held him and paid no attention to his ravings. Then, when the rope had finished its work, they let him go, and the sheriff too. The driver's friend had left his horses among the pines, and had come up to see what was going on at the gap. He now joined the crowd. "'You meant well,' the sheriff said to him. "'I wish you would tell the boys how you come to be here. They're thinking I lied to them. Maybe I can change their minds.' It was Dryland's deep voice. I am the man you are hunting, he said. They looked at him seriously, as one looks at a friend whom an illness has seized. The storm of feeling had spent itself, the mood of the gap was relaxed and torpid, and the serenity of coming dusk began to fill the mountain air. You boys think I'm touched in the head, said Drylin, and paused. This knife done it, said he, this one I'm showing you. They looked at the knife in his hand. He come between me and her, Dryland pursued. I was aiming to give him his punishment myself. That would have been square. He turned the knife over in his hand, and glancing up from it, caught the look in their eyes. You don't believe me, he exclaimed savagely. Well, I'm going to make you. Sheriff, I'll bring you some evidence. He walked to the creek and they stood idle and dull till he returned. Then they fell back from him and his evidence, leaving him standing beneath the dead man. "'Does them look like being touched in the head?' inquired Drylin, and he threw down the overalls, which fell with a damp slap on the ground. "'I don't seem to mind telling you,' he said. "'I feel as quiet.' as quiet as them tall pines the sun's just quittin' for the night. He looked at the men expectantly, but none of them stirred. I'd like to have it over, said he. Still no one moved. I have a right to ask it shall be quick, he repeated. You were quick enough with him. And Drylin lifted his hand towards the messenger. They followed his gesture, staring up at the wrong man, then down at the right one. The chatty neighbor shook his head. "'Seems curious,' he said slowly. "'It ought to be done, but I couldn't no more do it. Gosh, how can a man fire his gun right after it's been discharged?' The heavy Drylin looked at his comrades of the gap. "'You won't?' he said. "'You better quit us,' suggested the neighbor. "'Go somewheres else.' Dryland's eyes ran painfully over ditch and diggings, the near cabins and the distant hills, then returned to the messenger. Him and me, he muttered, it ain't square, him and me. Suddenly he broke out, 
I don't choose him to think I was that kind of man. Before they could catch him, he fell, and the wet knife slid from his fingers. Sheriff, he began, but his tone changed. I'm overtaking him, he said. He's going to know now. Lay me alongside. And so they did. End of section 7